Well, it's good to see you all. And um, I wonder, how many of you have read... I mean, I'm interested to know what role reading plays in your life. Someone I know quite well is doing an English literature degree. And uh, one would imagine someone doing an English literature degree does quite a lot of reading of English literature. She has managed to get a first in her first year without reading a single book. That is quite an achievement, don't you think? Apparently she's watching the films uh, of the books and that has been in, she has read sections, she says, of the book, but she has not read a whole book all the way through and she's doing an English literature degree. So um, I wonder how much you read. Uh, and uh, it's an important question, you see, because if you don't read much, I'm guessing it's also going to be true that you're going to find it quite hard to read the Bible, maybe. But maybe that's not always true. Maybe some people are really disciplined about reading the Bible but don't read anything else. Anyone read more than 10 books so far this year? Well, that's quite good. I'm quite impressed with that. Anyone reckon they've read 20 books this year? Wow. That is... That, Katie, do you really think you've read 20 books this year? <laughs> That's very impressive. Um, well, I won't ask you how much you read the Bible because that's a bit of a loaded question in church, isn't it? And I'm, it's not my intention to embarrass anyone. Um, and I suppose if you're just watching the film, uh, there are all sorts of different film versions of the Bible out there now. That's certainly better than nothing. But, um, you see, we believe, don't we, that God spoke... And what we have in our Bibles is God's Word. And the bottom line is, you can believe that as much as you like, but if you don't read it, it won't make any difference to your life in reality. I remember once, years and years ago, I was doing this talk to a Christian union, and I was trying to encourage them to read the Bible. And I, th I always think it's best to be honest. So I said to this group, there are parts of the Bible that are quite boring, quite hard to read, particularly if you don't fully understand why they're written the way they are. Uh, and I mentioned uh, the books of Chronicles in particular are not the most exciting sort of ripping yarn for you to read. Well, this student, very committed Christian, interrupted me and said, no, I'm not accepting that. The Bible cannot be boring. I said, okay. I, I said, well, I'm not saying it's actually boring. I'm just saying for us it sometimes seems a bit boring because perhaps... The priorities in the ancient world were not quite the same as our priorities, the things they found interesting. So I kind of hedged what I was saying a bit. But the truth is, you read Chronicles, it is quite hard work, right? Um, he said, no, I'm not having that. So I had a little moment of inspiration. I said to him, have you actually read Chronicles? And he said, no. <laughs> so I said, well, let me get this straight. You're saying that something you haven't read and I have read, uh, you know better than I do. And uh, so we left it at that. I probably shouldn't have gone that far, right? But anyway, uh, the Bible can be quite hard work to read. And if you're not in the habit of reading, it can be really hard work to read. And my guess is that the reality is for us here, some of us, the Bible is mostly shut. And we come to church maybe and we hear a bit. But if we were challenged as to whether that preacher was interpreting the Bible correctly, if we're honest, we wouldn't have the first idea. I was brought up in a home in which reading the Bible was an absolute given. When I saw my mum and my dad, they both spent hours reading the Bible, and boy, did they know it. Uh, they'd read it since childhood, 
a bit like Timothy, for those of you who remember that passage where Paul is speaking, Timothy, how from infancy you have known the Scriptures. I took the Bible in, if you like, with my mother's milk. And uh, I, I have read it and read it. It was in, my, my dad in particular, I remember spending hours every lunchtime with his lunch, he would sit and he would just read and read. And as I became aware of, um, as, as I got older, I became aware that if I talked to him about anything the Bible said, not only would he know the passage I was talking about, but he could immediately point me to other passages in the Bible that covered the same sort of theme. I was so impressed with his wisdom and his ability to handle the Bible. And uh, the fact that the Bible was the sort of foundation of everything was taken for granted in my home. So I'm going to try and answer two questions. Um, but before, uh, well, let's, let's get, the, uh, the, get the next slide up, if I may. Uh, yeah, this, um, this projector is not making the background as clear as I hoped. So uh, anyway, there we are. Now, I'm going to start by reading to you from 2 Peter. So if you could get that in front of you. 2 Peter chapter huh, 2, I think, from memory. If I can find it. 2 Peter chapter 1, actually, verse 12. And this is headed prophecy of Scripture. And if you can get it in front of you, that would be really good. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter says, I will remind you of these things, the things he's just been talking about, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it's right to refresh your memory. As long as I live in the tent of this body means his external body because I know that I will soon put it aside so he's an old man when he's writing this as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you'll always be able to remember these things now this is Peter talking towards the end of his life many people think uh, many scholars think that the gospel of Mark is based on uh, Peter's recollection that John Mark wrote down Peter's recollections of Jesus just as Peter was coming to the end of his life. And we have Peter here saying to these Christians that he's writing to, I realize that after I'm gone, you need a permanent record of who Jesus is and what he taught, and I'm making preparation for that. So that all kind of coheres together quite nicely. And he goes on to say this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he is saying to his readers, I'm reminding you about Jesus. We didn't make these stories up about him. We saw them with our own eyes. He received honor and glory from God, the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Peter here is referring to an event he witnessed, Jesus' baptism. He then goes on to say, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now he's talking about the transfiguration when Jesus went up the mountain and he was transfigured and he, he was blazing white. He goes on to say, we also have the prophetic message. Now he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. We have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. That's one metaphor he's giving for the scriptures that he had, what we have in the Old Testament, a light shining in a dark place. And he says you would do well to pay attention to it. 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's saying these scriptures are for you until the day when you see Jesus face to face. Then you can put them to one side because you will see him in reality. Until that time, you need these scriptures. Above all, he says, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how Christians understand the Bible. Human beings, the writings, the, the, the sayings and writings of human beings carried along by the Holy Spirit. Can I have the next slide, please? So, the first question I want to ask is, what is the Bible? If somebody said, well, yeah, what is the Bible to you? I wonder what, how you might describe it. Apparently, the most frequent description used when asked of young adults of what they understood the Bible to be, they, they said, it is the Word of God. They understand it to be God's words. Um, but I just want to... Uh, elaborate on that a little bit because it is very important if we're going to approach the Bible well to understand, uh, the, understand what it is correctly. See, Muslims believe that Muhammad had the Quran as we see it, as we have it now, was given to him in Arabic by Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. And it was absolutely, they believe, perfect in how it was delivered, and every last words of it is pure God, pure Allah, and there's no room even for translation, because inevitably in translation, some of the perfection of the, uh, of the words are lost, and therefore they believe it is best for you to learn Arabic if you really want to understand what God is saying. Christians have a very a subtle but very important difference in how we understand the Bible to how Muslims understand their scriptures. We believe that God inspired human beings to write this stuff down. And although it contains God's word, it comes in the form of human words. So when you read Paul's writings, if you look at them closely and compare them to John's writings, it is quite clear you're, you're reading the writings of two very different people. John is all mystical and artistic and really difficult to preach from if you've got my kind of personality, because I want things logical and sequential, so I'm very confident with Paul. When you get me on to John, he keeps repeating himself, but keeps developing arguments. It's beautiful and artistic, and I always feel like halfway through a sermon, I'm not doing it justice. I'm sure I'm not doing any of the Bible justice, but there we are. It, they, the, the Word of God, we believe, is revealed in and through human authors. And it's an important parallel here to what Jesus, the personality of Jesus. Jesus is both God and truly human. So in Christianity, you get this bringing together of humanity and divinity, whereas in, a, in, in Islam, that is anathema. God is utterly removed from human beings, and, and he never mixes with human beings. Whereas in Christianity, we understand that God draws close to human beings and wants to use human beings and wants to engage human culture 
as we are. That's a very important distinction because inevitably, therefore, with Islam, there's going to be a recreation of the culture in which that truth was revealed. Whereas we recognize that God's word here is contained, is given to particular people at particular times in particular situations. And whilst, therefore, we believe that God's word is contained in every word of Scripture, we also believe that it was given to a particular culture and we don't have to recreate that culture. You don't have to learn Greek in order to understand God's word and neither do we have to recreate the culture of the people at the time. What we do is we interpret it for our own culture and our own times today. So, the Bible is the Word of God, revealed in and through human writers, revealed at a particular time in history to particular people in a particular culture. And with all this in mind, we then say the Bible is the Word of God, but it is very important we introduce two words. The Bible correctly interpreted is the Word of God. And there's a, there's a, a demand on us to interpret it correctly. Now, I reckon all of you are pretty good at interpreting literature. I'd be surprised there's anyone here who's not reasonable at it, and some of you, I suspect, will be very good at it. Uh, I'm seeing Emma Turner over there. She teaches people how to interpret, uh, interpret uh, writings, interpret literature. Now, what's the principle in interpreting any text? How do you know what a text means? Can a text just mean anything? How do you know if you're getting the interpretation right? It's a very deep question when you begin to reflect on it, but I'm going to short-circuit the answer for the purpose of time. Do I have a next slide, please? Here is uh, an ancient manuscript of the Bible. That is actually, looks like Hebrew to me. And uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in ancient Greek. Um, how do you know if you're taking a, a text that was written centuries, maybe thousands of years ago, if you're interpreting it correctly? Any suggestions? We'll talk about translation in a minute, John. That is an important part of it. Anything else? Context. Very good, John. We'll come back to context in a minute. Tim, would you mind... Uh, Um, there has to be consensus um, among other scholars or with other experts. Yes, that's, that's very good. So one important, uh, one important um, uh, consideration is that you're coming up with in, an interpretation that is consistent with what other people have seen in a text. I don't know if you watch Blackadder. I don't know if that may, name means anything to you. It was really, really popular when I was sort of the age most of you are now. And um, uh, there was a discussion between a ship's captain and Blackadder, who was the star of the series, played by Rowan Atkinson. If you haven't watched it, Google it. Spend a little time watching it. I recommend it. Blackadder Series 2 is the best, I think. Now... Blackadder tries to get a good ship's captain, but he gets a rubbish ship's captain. And they get out to sea, and Blackadder finds 
that there is no crew on this ship other than the captain. And he speaks to the captain and says to the captain, isn't it normal to have a crew? And the captain says, opinion is divided on the matter. Uh, and he says, there's me who says you don't need a crew and there is everyone else who says you do. There's an important truth embedded in that. If you're coming up with an interpretation of Scripture that nobody, say, for the first 19 and a half centuries of the church came up with, you would be right to think, is it just possible that I've got a wrong interpretation? That's one very important thing. Context is another very important thing in interpreting any text, uh, and particularly with the Bible, because people have a tendency to do what's called proof texting, which is to justify an opinion they hold by quoting one verse, or even half of a verse. Now, they may be right, but when you're just ripping stuff out of its context and, uh, and just using it to justify a belief that you have, you are prone to misunderstanding what the author means in the wider context of the text. I'll give you an example. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Job, but large sections of the book of Job are given over to the opinion of Job's friends, which God doesn't endorse. I went to a Christian's house once. They had Bible texts all over the place, which was great. But one of the things they had, they had quotations from the book of Job in sections that were actually attributable to Job's friends that God criticized and did not affirm. And they, were, they had them up as proof texts to memorize as God's word. They hadn't understood the context. I didn't have the heart to tell them. Uh, I, I probably should have done as a responsible pastor, right? So context is very important too. But I think there's something even more important as a principle of interpretation. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Richard. Historical context. So yes, the cultural, and uh, if we go back a slide. The Bible was revealed, that the Word of God, what we have in the Bible is the Word of God revealed at a particular time in history to particular people in particular culture. So a good example of this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, and he says that women should have their head covered in worship. Now, I look around. I'm not seeing any of you ladies with your heads covered. So I reckon either you're unaware of that scripture or you've done some cultural reappropriation of it or you're disobedient. One of those three. I'll leave you to see which one of those you think you fit into. Um, there's some debate over what Paul meant. He could have just meant long hair, but of course he's talking about something that had cultural significance in the day and does not have that same cultural significance now. So to get to the heart of what Paul means, you have to ask what was it that he was referring to that was signified by this head covering. We want to endorse the attitude he was encouraging, not necessarily the cultural expression of it. But there's something even more important. It's so obvious that perhaps it's too obvious. Could it be something along the lines of having a little bit of knowledge about the author or the person who's wanting to say, in a sense, like, if you know a little bit of what God is like, yes. then you, that can help you think, could, should we take this first this way or that way? Because you know yes. why on a wider scale, what God's generally like? Yes. Um, I, think, I think I'm on the same lines as you. Now, if you were reading Jane Austen and having a discussion about the meaning of Pride and Prejudice, 
And I was giving a paper, and we were all at an academic conference where we were debating the merits of this book and what it signified in its day. You'd be at home, wouldn't you, uh, Emma? You'd love that. And I stood and said, well, my reading of Austin is she's an ultra-conservative writer, and what she's really trying to do is reaffirm in Pride and Prejudice all the prejudices of her day. She feels very comfortable about them and is very challenged by any radical thinking, what might you say to that, Emma? No. <laughs> and why would you say no? You sure you want to start this conversation? Well, <laughs> say it in, um, in, in, in shorthand. Why would I be wrong if I said that? Because Jane Austen's ideas and thoughts about the role of women in society and culture were widely ahead of their time. That's one of the reasons she's one of the most celebrated authors is because she challenged women's identity, she challenged the role of women, she challenged the role of wealth, and it was completely unusual. Also, her, her ability to write funny characters was completely unusual and unique. But why, at the moment, all we're saying is you're saying that and I'm saying this. Who gets to decide ultimately, which one of us is right? Uh, I think you go back to what's already been mentioned, the majority of consensus in Austin scholars throughout history mm. and pretty much most women in their 30s and 40s and every generation who love these books and take ownership of them, most people have an opinion. So it's very controversial. So but ultimately, <laughs> am I right in saying the person who gets to decide is Jane Austen. Yes. Yeah. It's so obvious, but it's a critical point. I can't... When we interpret a text, or indeed anything anyone says to us, the meaning of that communication is what that person intended to convey, right? So when we look at the scriptures, we've got two authors. We've got a human author, and we've got God lying behind that human author. And we believe that God's word is contained in the human words of that author. And so responsible interpretation always says this. What did Paul, what did Luke, what did Mark, what did John, what did Peter, what did King Solomon, what did Moses, whoever the human authors were inspired by God's spirit, what did they mean to say? That is the authoritative meaning of the text. Let's look into this a bit more. Can I have the next slide? So, the process of interpretation. Well, that is already an interpretation because it's a translation. And any of you who know even a little bit of another language know that as soon as you translate a text, you are inevitably imposing something of, a, uh, of your own meaning on it. And that's why we have teams of scholars if you read the beginning of the NIV, for example, there's several pages about how they translated it and how they did their utmost to make sure it was a faithful translation. And um, you can learn Greek. In fact, my dad taught himself Hebrew and Greek so that he could read the original text. But the good thing is, we believe that God has helped these scholars make a good translation. The NIV, most of the other mainstream English translations are good translations, and the meaning can be accurately conveyed, if not absolutely perfectly conveyed. Secondly, in terms of our heart response, 
when we come to the scriptures, we need prayer and humility. So I really like what Chris Rowe said last week about when he comes before the Bible in the morning, each morning he says, God, I know nothing. Please teach me things from your word. That is the appropriate prayerful response. The Bible, if it's God's word, is not there for you to negotiate with. It's not there for you to think, well, I like what God says about justice, but I don't like what he says about giving. I like what the Bible says in this passage, but I don't agree with that passage. There may be bits that you don't understand that don't seem palatable to you at the moment. That might be because you've misunderstood them, or it might be because God's got some work to do on your character. But we accept the message of the Bible as God's word. And therefore, we are there in an attitude of humility and obedience before it. The Bible, rightly interpreted, is God's word. And therefore, when it comes to it to me, I come to it with an attitude of obedience. If God says it, it's not there for me to debate it. It is there. We might debate the interpretation. That's a different thing. But once we feel confident that we've got the interpretation correct, we are to be in submission to it. Now, of course, we need to read it. All this work has been done by scholars, extraordinary amounts of work to get this into your hands. In various parts of the world, because they recognize this is a subversive book, they don't want you to have it. Uh, I heard this great story that in Iran, the Bible has a particular cover. The state don't really like it. It's a very uh, strongly Islamic state. They don't want the Bible freely available, but it's kind of circulating um, under the radar. And it comes in a particular color. I can't remember. I seem to remember it was in a red cover. And the, the authorities said to people, you are not to have a Bible. We don't want you having this red book. And so a little discussion was taken amongst the translators. They said, well, given that the authorities told people not to have a red book, should we change the cover and change it to a blue book? And I spoke to some Iranian nationals. They said, no, no, no. Keep it that color. It's the best advert you could ever have. If the authorities are telling people not to have it, that's the best advert for having it you could possibly uh, want. But the Bible is a subversive book. It really does challenge greed. It challenges injustice. It challenges dishonesty. It challenges promiscuity. It challenges faithfulness. It challenges deceitfulness. It will go right to the heart of who you are as a person and shake you in your selfishness if you allow it to. And it does the same for human cultures. It's described uh, in, in the Bible itself as like a sword that got straight to the heart of who we are. And forces of conservatism don't like it because it lays bare the things we become comfortable with. People have given their lives. They have given their lives in terms of martyrdom. They have given their lives in terms of study and translation so that you could have God's word freely available to you. Like so much in the West, we have it all and we take it all for granted. You've got to read it. You've got to make time. And interpreting badly, and there are plenty of very bad translations of the Bible and its teaching around, loads of them, is basically marked by us coming to the Bible and imposing a meaning there that really says more about us than it does about God. Scholars call this eisegesis, reading a meaning 
into Scripture that started in our head and now is getting imposed on the Bible. What we're meant to do is read out of the Bible into our minds. Scholars call this exegesis. And so when Tim and myself and others who've been to a Bible college to train for ministry, the thing they're constantly trying to teach us is how to ensure that we're actually getting to a meaning that approximates to what the author likely meant. And that means you have to have some understanding of the culture, which Richard was referring to, the historical culture out of which it came, and not come up with meanings that the original author could not possibly have intended. All right, finally, here's a couple of verses for you to reflect on. Could you have the next slide, please, dear? Paul says to the Roman church, after giving what, what in our Bibles is 11 chapters of really deep theology, really important teaching about what God's purposes are in the world, he says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you imagine the world as a system, the Bible really thinks, presents it like this, the world system, and you're an individual, and I'm an individual, and culture, and um, marketing, and all the messages of the media are bearing down on us all the time. News channels, podcasts, oh, you name it. It's all soap operas. Does anyone watch soap operas anymore? Anyone willing to admit they watch a soap opera? No, okay, obviously that's died a death. Um, soap opera is like, social media is like soap opera on steroids, isn't it? Um, all of this bearing down on us all the time, constant messages. And, and Paul envisages that as, as the human being being constantly shaped, shaped into the pattern of this world system. So things that seem plausible to us, there's good evidence to show the things that seem implausible to us are largely so because we get the impression lots of people around us share that opinion. And, um, and the world is doing that all the time. It is giving you messages about how you should be as a person, how you should present yourself, what you should be like. And Paul says, don't be conformed. It is not trustworthy. These messages are not trustworthy. Let me give you an example. We are constantly fed a diet that the superstars in life, the celebrities, they're what to aspire to. They've got, they're fantastically good looking. They've got great bodies. They're, they're, they must be living the high. They've got money and glamour and glitz. And everyone on social media is trying to present themselves as a mini celebrity. And yet, when you read the gossip mags, their lives are often a mess. Why? That narrative doesn't stack up, does it? So many of us, under the influence of this, are constantly trying to be thinner. Always good to be healthy, of course, but to be thinner, to be fitter, trying to present ourselves so we're as beautiful as we can be. Maybe on social media, feeling a tremendous pressure to make ourselves look good and make our lives look fantastic. But actually, there's a reality going on in people's lives that's never spoken about. It's not making people happy. Consumerism does not make people happy. There's good evidence to show it makes people anxious. Don't be conformed. 
Don't be fooled. Don't think that the messages that you're getting on social media or through the mainstream media and worst of all through marketing are reliable. They're not. There is no life there. There is no health. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Open your mind to God's word. If, like me, you're tempted to do 25 hours of Amazon Prime and Netflix a week and you do half an hour of this, which is going to win out? I mean, this is powerful. I reckon half an hour of Bible could easily take on five hours of the rubbish that we all consume. Not all of it is rubbish. But if we do not open this word, you know, God's done everything necessary. He not only inspired the writers, he sent the translators, the publishers, the app designers. It's all there. It's ready. You can engage God's word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get this into your mind. Let it be the foundation of your beliefs. The person whose Bible is falling apart will not have a life that is falling apart. And then James, as so often in his letter, just gets straight to the heart of it. He says, don't just listen to what this says. You know, there are some people who... You'll find them in universities uh, who love debating what the Bible means about something. But they are strangers to actually doing what it says. James says that is a pitiful condition. I mean, honestly, if you're not going to do what it says, don't waste your time reading it. He says, don't just listen, do it. So here is a profound challenge. I'm asking you to do something really countercultural. I'm asking you to switch off your phone. So, oh, you could read it on your phone, of course. That's the get out. That's what, you know, that's what young people maybe always say to the youth leader in, uh, in youth group. Oh, no, I'm just reading the Bible on my phone. Unless you're reading the Bible on your phone, switch your phone off. Get the Bible in your hands, read it. And I'll tell you this, from my experience, I've spent years reading it. The wisdom you will find there will set you up for this life and the next. God bless you.